so, so grateful. Oh, well, this is the sixth week now of our Progressive Christianity series. Are you able, have you been here in person with us? Are you listening online? Are you sort of caught up? No. Yes? Yes? Okay, last week we talked a lot, so are you caught up? Yes. Okay, if you aren't caught up, hopefully we can catch you up with this. We started by talking about basically what are the essentials of Christianity, and we're defining it as progressive Christianity um, just to help differentiate maybe where some of us came from to where we are. But in essence, we think this is the heart of Christianity in itself. And so we've talked a lot, again, about who God is, what is the nature of God. Um, and, we, and we spoke to that about God being a God of love, God not being someone that we should fear. That is the last thing that God longs from us. And then we talked a lot about who we are as humanity, who we are as the beloved, and thus what is our relationship between us as humans and creation to then God? Is God to be feared? Is God something that needs our sacrifices? Um, or is that something that came into the human construct but maybe God didn't need? And we've agreed that we think along the way that we've grown out of that and realized that, that no, that's not who God is and that's not who we are. And then that led us into a talk about then what is sin? What was this thing that happened in the story of Garden of Eden? Um, does sin separate us or does sin simply cause estrangement, which is something in our minds where we feel this separation from God, but yet that is not the truth and not the reality. And then we went from that conversation straight into Jesus, and we sort of bypassed who the man of Jesus was or the divinity of Jesus right into what is salvation. And we talked a little bit about the cross and what was the cross. And so and then last week, we had some amazing conversations with you that were willing to jump on mic, and I know a lot of you had more questions, and so we'll come back to that and do that again. But last week, we talked a lot about authority of Scripture, and okay, well, some of this feels confusing because this the Old Testament says these things about God, and yet the New Testament says this. Are we supposed to throw out those verses? We talked about that. We talked about humanism and that the more theistic we get, the more humanistic we get. Um, we talked about... Pluralism, exclusivism, right. inclusivism, which was a big one, and I think sort of the heart of where we are and what we're speaking to within progressive Christianity. And so there's still a lot to go over, and we definitely need to have a talk on authority as well and what is Scripture. But I wanted us, and we wanted, to come back today about who is Jesus? Who is this person of Jesus, and what does Jesus mean for us? And so you talk about that story um, with Mary, and so maybe we should yeah. start there. Okay, and to this point of who is Jesus, obviously that's a central question for Christianity. We, re we named our religion after him, right? So obviously this is a central tenet of our faith, who is, who is Jesus. We share a lot of similarities with a lot of religions, our belief in God, our belief in human value, our belief in the perpetuity of the soul, um, you know, all of those things. We share a lot with other religions, but one of the things uh, that differentiates us is our perspective on this person named Jesus. And so always at the heart of Christianity is who is Jesus. I read a book years ago. A lot of you read the book. It was a popular book by Philip Yancey, great evangelical author. You might remember it. It was called The Jesus I Never Knew. Was a, that's a great title, The Jesus I Never Knew. And I um, read another book by Don McCullough, who used to be the president of San Francisco Theological, a Presbyterian guy. Don's dissertation that he turned into a book, uh, his doctoral dissertation, uh, the book was called The Trivialization of God, uh, The Dangerous Illusion of a Manageable Deity. And Don, in that book, went into the way that the idea of God can develop in the individual soul. And in that book, even, Don talked about 
the multiplicities of Jesus that he experienced over the course of his spiritual evolution. And then Brian McLaren, a book that I would recommend to everybody, a great primer on all of this, is a book called Generous Orthodoxy. A little chapter at the front of McLaren's book was called The Seven Jesuses I've Known. Now, that's bothersome to some people, and yet I completely understand the point. Brian is not saying that Jesus is seven people. He's not even talking about all of the fancy theological ideas that we developed in the first through seventh centuries concerning the substance of Jesus, the essence of Jesus, the nature of Jesus. Brian's simply saying, throughout the course of my life, I saw Jesus differently along the way. And I think to some degree we can all admit to that. As a matter of fact, I've sat with many people who have told me that they've lost faith in Jesus. I don't necessarily always knee-jerk with great concern when somebody says they've lost faith in Christianity or Jesus. I, I have learned to take pause and say, well, do me a favor and tell me about this Jesus that you've lost faith in. And about nine out of ten times, I look at them and say, well, thank God that you've lost faith in that Jesus because that faith in that Jesus merited a loss of faith. Um, you haven't lost faith in Jesus. You've lost faith in a poor facsimile of Jesus that was represented to you. Um, I, last year, and I would say that my brother lives in Memphis, and he doesn't call himself a Christian, um, but we, we grew up on the same pew together, and he's probably watching this morning, and he wouldn't mind me saying this because he has a deep spirituality, and he's one of the finest Christians that I've ever met who doesn't call himself a Christian. As a matter of fact, I wish most people lived his life. But we were walking between the Gerst House and the stadium last year because we're Steeler fans and the Steelers were here. And we, we don't talk a lot about church. I wore him out in the early days of my preaching ministry. He was cannon fodder for my preaching. And he was that lost brother, you know, that I could develop all kinds of sob stories. And hopefully somewhere he's forgiven me for all of that. But we were walking along and he said, hey, bub, do you worry about me? And I knew, forgive me, because he and I hadn't talked about God in 20 years. I just wanted to be his brother, not some preacher. I did all that to him. And I said, I really don't. I said, because the Jesus that I know has already told me what the answers are in the back of the book, and he's told me that if you're taking care of hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, prisoner. And I said, that's the whole life I've seen you live. And he said, well, I'm glad. And he said, by the way, he said, I watch your sermons on Sunday morning. <laughs> and I said, you do? And he said, yeah. And he said, if we, if we lived in Nashville, Tiff and I said we would come to your church. And we started talking about Jesus, and I asked him, I said, tell me about the Jesus you rejected 30 years ago. And J.W., it has nothing to do with the Jesus I know now. And I told him, me too, if that's Jesus and if that's Christianity. One of the most powerful things that Jesus ever said to his disciples, we never talk about. In John 20, Mary Magdalene, who loved him deeply, some really believe she loved him deeply, but I know she loved him deeply as a disciple. She met the risen Christ. 
and this incredibly meaningful person in her life, the Bible says that post-resurrection, think about this, she had lost him. Anybody here ever lost Jesus? It's a scary deal to lose Jesus. I lost Jesus years ago, and I was not a dissident thumbing my nose at this whole thing. I was desperately trying to get a hold on that greasy slide that I was sliding. I did not want to lose Jesus, but I lost him. He, the Jesus I knew became untenable intellectually, spiritually, and it just made no sense to me, and I was very sad about it. And that was Mary and the disciples. They lost him. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of that loss, Jesus reappears. Now, if you're Mary and you've lost Jesus and he reappears in powerful form, what do you do to him? Right? And the Bible says the first thing she did was she wrapped her arms around him, dug into him. And you know what she was saying? You're never getting away from me again. And do you remember what Jesus said to her? Anybody remember what he said? It's one of the most powerful things that Jesus ever said to anybody, and we don't know how to handle it. Jesus looked at her, and I can see him push back from her as her fingers dig into his ribs, and he holds her face. And he doesn't say, write me a song, worship me, cling to me, never let me go. The Bible says in that moment of great pain, and yet hope restored, he pushed back from her. And as she looked at him, wanting to meet in his eyes, you're never going to leave me again, are you? Promise me. And he smiles. And he shakes his head. And she cries because she knows, she intuits what he's about to say. And he says, let me go. Let me go, Mary. One of the most profound realities for me in my spiritual journey has been settling in peacefully to a Jesus who never told me to worship him, did encourage me to follow him, but ultimately told me that my spiritual life would really be formed by my capacity periodically to let go. Not to let go so I wouldn't have him, but to let go so I could have him like I could have never imagined having him. Letting go, not because Jesus is saying, I don't want to be in your life and I don't want you in mine, but letting go because Jesus is saying, you need to let go of me the way you know me so you can have me the way you need me. And letting go is a desperately scary part of our spirituality. And that's been my journey with Jesus. And the question every time in those processes, I wish I could tell you that this paschal cycle of life and death and burial and resurrection is one thing, one time that you, in consecutive fashion, get through. And you live, you die, you're buried, you're resurrected. But the paschal cycle of Christianity, whether it's in your human relationships or in your relationship with the divine, your relationship with life, vocation, your children, that Paschal cycle is always repeating. And when McLaren 
up the ante of Yancey's, the Jesus I never knew, and McLaren said there's seven Jesuses I've known. What was really moving to me was Brian did not disparage any of them. That fundamentalist Jesus that he knew in the independent fundamental Baptist world, he did not disparage that. The charismatic Jesus, the orthodox Jesus, all of these Jesuses, as Anne Lamott said, none of them were the substantial pad of faith upon which I could build my life, but like lily pads across the swamp of doubt and fear, each of them held me until I outgrew them and found the next lily pad until ultimately I came to the verdant pad of faith on which I now rest. And so this is not disparaging, but to be able to have that conversation with my brother and to hear my brother say, I am willing again to explore Jesus. The question is, who is Jesus? So, you know, have I, have I settled the second person of the Trinity and the divinity issue in that conversation? No. But I think this is the way Jesus would talk about Jesus a whole lot more than the technical language that we've imposed upon Jesus and the academic side uh, that we have made so much the bulk of Christianity. And when you say that we're called to let go, I think what you're saying without saying, though, is that we're also called, though, to become like Jesus. That's the whole point, is that if we are disciples of Christ, disciples are supposed to grow into being like the teacher. And so as we need to let go of who Jesus is, it's because Jesus is with us and in us, and we have this capacity then to grow into, and thus the church has got caught up forever arguing about all the different ways we should be believing in Jesus, and we've missed it the whole time that we should be following Jesus and following in these footsteps of Jesus. And so... That's why people like Borg and, and um, Robin Myers, who wrote this great book that I love, um, How to Stop Worshiping Jesus and Start Following Jesus, Saving Jesus from the Church. And that feels provocative and edgy, but the point is we're called to follow him. Yeah, and well, I personally believe that it's a lot easier to worship someone than to, let's, let's do it with alliteration, it's easier to venerate than it is to imitate, Right? That's why we take our martyrs and our heroes and we build them marble statues. You know what we're doing when we build our hero statues? You know, when we do that to Gandhi or King or Jesus, what we're doing is we're exceptionalizing them. You know what it means to exceptionalize somebody? They are the exception. You know what we're doing there? We're saving ourselves from having to be that. Right. If, if I can venerate them and make them other than me, then... You know, I will give them one of the seven positions at Westminster Abbey in terms of great humans. But the point is, Jesus never wanted to be venerated. He wanted to be imitated. He wanted to be followed. And, and, and that's, a, that's a harder mission, frankly. Right, because we, and I, I, I did it for years, and I think we as the church do this now, that we come in and we think that this hour and 20 minutes, this is the part where we get to worship God and worship Jesus. And then if that's all it is, we leave it at the door, and then we go spend the next six days forgetting about it and not living this life, which is the hard part, which is the sacrificial part, where we're supposed to care for people and look out for the underdog and fight for people and live for people and give generously. And all of that's left behind if it's only about a vertical belief or worship. Yeah, and interestingly, Jesus at the end, I mean, again, the, the answer in the back of the book, Jesus never said, well, believed. What did he say? Well, you did something. It's not well believed. It's, it's well done. And the description that he gave was the life that he lived. Now, 
so for those that would press in technically in theology is important to you. Well, it is to me too. I personally believe God came in the person of Jesus Christ. I am orthodox in the sense that I believe Paul, that to wit, great, without controversy, great is the mystery of God. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on the world, and received up into glory. I believe in the divinity of Christ. I am deeply traditional and orthodox in the sense that I believe God not only came in the person, but this is transpropositional. It's beyond preposition. It's not just God was in that man. God became flesh. That's the incarnation, and that's profound. I think what's even more profound about the incarnation is that God was not exceptionalizing when He did that. When, when God chose to come in the person of Jesus Christ, the writer of Hebrews and Paul on two occasions said that He was the image of God. And, and as soon as a student of Scripture, as soon as you hear Paul talking about Jesus was the image of God, you think, imago Dei, image of God. I've heard that somewhere before, right? Where did we hear about God coming in flesh? Where did we hear about fleshly beings described as the image of God prior to Jesus? It's the Garden of Eden story, right? Male and female created he them, imago Dei, in the image of God. So this is not new language when God comes in the person of Jesus. God comes in the person of Jesus and reflectively in that initial move to understand the divinity of Christ, Paul said that's the very image of God. And, and Paul said he was the second Adam. And there was a first Adam. And that first Adam was also made in the image of God. Now, am I personally putting the first Adam and the second Adam substantially on the same level. No, I suppose orthodoxy reigns in me at that point, and I, I don't, but I think it's closer than we've believed. Because I don't believe that Jesus was coming with the chief mission to be, I am now revealing the triune nature of God, and I am the second person of the Trinity, and I want you to understand homoousius, same substance, same essence, same nature. I want you to understand all of this fancy. I don't think that's what he was doing. I think God came in the person of Jesus Christ, not simply to say, you who, this is where I am. I think God was saying, this is where I've always been. This is where I've always been, incarnate, in flesh, in humans. And so he wasn't exceptionalizing. He was trying to say, this isn't just who God is. I would like to describe to you in Jesus who you are. I'm not trying to reveal the mystery of the unknown God. I'm trying to reveal the lostness of who you are. You are the beloved created in the image of God. He didn't hear anything at his baptism that Adam and Eve didn't hear in the garden. And he didn't come to be our daddy or our mama. We already have the eternal parent, but the eternal parent condescends, incarnate, in flesh, and he doesn't say a whole lot about the eternal sonship of God, but he does connect himself to humanity and say, when you do it unto the least of these, you're doing it unto me. And ultimately, the Apostle Paul, I think, 
I don't think the Apostle Paul understood the magnitude, the depth, and the layers of everything he said, and that's one of the reasons I believe in the inspiration of Scripture. I don't believe in the dictation of Scripture, um, but I do believe in the inspiration of the text. I think just like Isaiah didn't understand all of the Messianic text, I don't think Paul understood all of the incredible theology. I think in the first 200 years of liberal Christianity, Paul has got a bad rap, and people like A.J., Nick, is helping redeem Paul. Paul said majestic things. Give the guy a chance. Paul said things just like Isaiah and the prophets before him. He said things that he did not fully comprehend. But in Romans 8, 28, when he said, For we know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, and to those who are the called according to God's purpose. He goes on into verse 29, and this is majestic. He said, For those whom he foreknew, he did predestine us, listen, to be conformed into the image imago. To be conformed into the image of his son. This is your journey. This is a soul-making universe. This is a Christ-making earth. Your pain, your sorrow, your struggle, your joys, all of that is a cauldron. It's a laboratory. It is a process of soul-making. And that soul-making is Christ-making. Because Paul said what he is predestined is that we would be conformed through life. Jeremiah 18 and the potter's wheel, again and again coming back to that process, that we would be conformed into the image of his son. Who was Jesus? The son, the living witness, not for us to encrypt or engrave or make a marble statue of, but for us to look at and say, we are the body of Christ. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. We are his flesh. Paul said that we all might be conformed to the image of his son. You want to know who Jesus is? Paul said it. I don't know that he fully understood, but we're growing into a knowledge of this. He said that Jesus might be the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. Who is Jesus? He is your elder sibling. And you know what it means to be siblings with another human being biologically. It means you share parentage. You share essence, DNA, and identity. Jesus is the firstborn. He is elevated, and therein lies my orthodoxy and the distinction between the qualitative nature of the first Adam and the second Adam. I still, and I may not be able to defend it, but I still elevate the second Adam at a special level of divinity, deity. We are divinized. We are not deified. I don't think we're gods, but I do think, I think the, the difference between deity and divinity is deity is God. Divinity is of the essence of God. In, in relation to my parent, I am not Stephen Shirley Mitchell, but I am of the essence of Stephen Shirley Mitchell. And I don't believe I'm God, and I don't believe I was made a God, but I am divine. The saints call that divinization because I am made of the essence of God. And by the end, that essence is going to be so rolled into God, Jesus said in the end, if you overcome even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in His throne, 
Jesus said, I will bring you into that throne and you will sit with me in that throne. What is the throne? The throne is the full advantages and privileges of God. And I always thought we were going to spend 10,000 years in heaven singing songs around the throne. Jesus said, you ain't going to be singing songs around the throne. I'm going to pull you into the throne. And that's where Paul said that God might be all in all. So there's this divinization process. We don't know exactly how that plays out. But who is Jesus in that process? Jesus is God come, not to reveal simply the second person, the Trinity, and the nature of God. But he is Jesus come to reveal the reality of who I am. I am. And in the end, I'll close with this. Hebrews 2 Paul said that Jesus will come before the Father and he will sing songs of praise to the Father. And then he will present us and he will say, these are your children of whom I am not ashamed to call brothers and sisters. To get lost in the theological question of what is the nature of Jesus, what is the essence of Jesus, to get lost in the venerating statue form theology of trying to understand who Jesus is and to miss the very practical thing that publicans and harlots and all of those people that surrounded him understood. Jesus didn't come to reveal simply who he and God was. He came to reveal who we are. And that's the nature of Jesus. And I think that's very orthodox, but I think those are some of the elements that progressive Christianity is beginning to push to the fore. And that's why I say the more theistic I become, the more humanistic I become. Those are not contrary. The height of our religion is flesh. And I would even push against humanism. It's creationism because I think God didn't say that he was inhumane. He said he was incarnate, in flesh. And humans aren't the only flesh. And we have to deeply consider how we handle all flesh the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, and also creation in this universe. Um, so anyway, that's my take on Jesus just a little bit. I'm sure that provoked <laughs> a lot of questions. But that's it's who Jesus is and it's who you are. It's good. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> Every time what? I had a note I was going to say, I was like, oh, he said it. Okay. Uh, uh, he said it. So Jesus gave us this way of being in the world. And the church understandably has got caught up more on believing in Jesus versus recognizing who Jesus was and who we are called to be. And that's what, and James, uh, the epistle of James pressed into that very early on. I, I, I don't like to say, well, the church has done this in any way that the church has done something wrong. I think the seven Jesuses and the 7,000 Jesuses we've known, I don't think God's anywhere saying, oh, come on. I think God's saying this is a natural process.